0: Taking Back Birth is a production of the IndieBirth Private Contract Association and IndieBirth.org. No material on this podcast should be considered medical advice. Birth is not a medical event. This podcast is another conversation for the guys, or for anyone that wants to listen in. My husband Jason is back, this time with our friend and wise elder, Tom Knowles. I've had the honor of supporting Tom and his wife through one, soon to be two amazing home births. And his wisdom is definitely something I hope you share.
1: So welcome everybody to the podcast. My name is Jason. I am uh, Maren's husband and I am honored to have today with us Tom Knowles, who is a great friend and supporter of IndieBirth uh, for quite some time now. So thank you for donating your time to come on.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure.
1: So Maren asked me months ago to start kind of reaching out uh, to men and having conversations that maybe they've never had, or maybe they've never had a chance to hear about the birth experience from a male perspective and more specifically from a father's perspective. So, uh, I know you have witnessed the birth of nine children, yeah. um, like a, I have.
2: And a 10th coming up. Have and you coming on.
1: Yes yeah. yeah, so we're we're in very uh similar situations in some ways. Um, so, I know that my journey has kind of been a cosmic education of sorts uh, in in witnessing all this. so my first place to begin with you is if you can kind of think back to the birth of your first child and what that experience was like for you.
2: My first child was born in 1973, and uh, it was, uh, at the time, considered to be revolutionary that my wife had chosen to have me in the delivery room, as they <laughs> used to make a distinction between the labor room and the delivery room in those days. Wow. And uh, she was practicing the um, the, the breathing methods uh, of Lavoyer, which... Nobody had heard of this. was in Australia, which you know, where the the greening of obstetrics had already uh, begun there, but nothing like what we would see today. And she chose to have no drugs or assistance, but it was a hospital birth. The revolutionary thing was that uh, the obstetrician agreed to allow me to be in the delivery room and to actually witness the phenomenon of the delivery. And my wife chose to take no drugs or painkillers of any kind. Now, in 1973, that was absolutely cutting edge.
3: Oh, yeah. <laughs> and
2: <laughs> and um, our son was uh, a relatively long labor, I think about 12 hours or so. I do remember the nurses uh, around me looking at me and saying things like, You're a cruel man. You should let her have some painkillers. Oh. And, um, and, you know, it's just, you know, she just needs a simple epidural. And, you know, the doctor has a golf game at 3 a at 3 p.m. And uh, it would be great if he could be born today. So the doctor doesn't have to skip his his golf game. Uh, and, you know, that was thought of by the nurses present in the obstetrics ward as um, they were being kind to my wife because they were motivating her to push harder. <laughs> so, compare that with my most uh, recent uh, experience of being a father present at my child's birth with, uh, with Maren in attendance, where Maren sat quietly as an innocent witness, bringing her cosmic uh, aura into the environment speaking very, very quiet words of encouragement to my wife, who was floating in a birthing pool at home in our living room with a nice little merry fire burning in the fireplace. Um, And, you know, the labor took about eight hours um, and happened overnight. And, um, you know, we were able to make a video of it. And the whole atmosphere was one of sanctity. Uh, It was one of um, you felt like you were in some kind of a super sacred space. Um, There was nobody shouting or yelling. There was no one wearing hospital gowns. Uh, There was no nonsense going on. Basically um, the kind of birth that probably appends I would say, and I don't know the true statistics, Jason, but I would say perhaps 90% of births that occur on the earth currently are children being born landing on sand or landing on ice in an igloo or landing on a banana leaf in the tropics. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's a relatively small number of births that happen in hospital settings as we had become used to it, or as in the West, we are still used to it. So, it was, uh, you know, it was, uh, I remember uh, when our son came out, being able to look at him and him lying there in the crib when we, we took him home, uh, probably three or four hours later, which was also revolutionary. Yeah. And seeing him lying in the crib in the dark darkened room, and I approached him and felt like I was in the presence of a little avatar someone who was just pure being, uh, who was really pure spirit, no, um, the adulteration or, or pollution of, of the hypnosis of social conditioning hadn't yet had its, its chance to play on his mind. Right. And so being able to look at him like that, and it was a, 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 a humbling experience for me as a father.
1: We spoke for a minute before we started recording this about current world events and the amount of fear that's currently present and being shown uh, to everyone. And you said something to the effect of, you know, I mentioned it's interesting to see what people are carrying around on the inside be expressed on the outside. And you said there only is the inside. And for anyone listening who doesn't know, Tom uh, is, for lack of a better better word, a world-renowned teacher of vedic meditation so you have much experience with the inside um in your fir- at your first birth what was going
2: on inside for you um you know i felt that uh there was the, any, any fears because i was already a meditation teacher way back then yeah, yeah. and quite an experienced one even though i was young um I had been grounded in a sense of nature knows best how to organize Mm
3: -hmm.
2: that. um, Whatever is happening here is not an event that has to do with me, my expectations or fulfillment, but an event that uh, was nature working within itself to bring someone uh, onto the earth. Uh, And that it was not, even an, an achievement of my wife's, not that I want to take anything away from her, but that it was a phenomenon that our bodies were being used for. And to, um, you know, to have uh, fear meant to, you know, be loaded up with expectations.
0: Right. And
2: I'd already become very used to by, re- as a, one of the results of practicing my meditation regularly as to allow nature to structure your expectations, um, and not to become rigidly attached to specific timings and specific outcomes, and trusting that in the larger picture, nature knows what it's doing. Yeah. And because of that, I can honestly say that I was largely without fear.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, you know, I, uh, and I think that one of the things that appends particularly a first birth for a father is you know fear like what what if something happens to my child in the process of birthing what if something happens to my wife what if it's all a disaster what if what if what if um and you know i i i think that i'd had sufficient training at that point i'd already been a teacher uh for about four or five years Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Uh, i'd had sufficient training to just absolutely relax and let go and let nature do what nature was doing and to be an innocent witness of it. Um, And for me that made all the difference. And of course, you know, I was delighted with the outcome. Everything turned out just fine. Um, I was delighted with the outcome, but, uh, but I think that um, I was also inside prepared that if for some reason if for whatever reason, things went in some way that people normally wouldn't expect or anticipate or prefer, um, that nature was still doing its work in its own way.
1: Yeah. Just to serve as contrast, (laughs) my first birth, (laughs) I was living a life where I was the voice in my head. (laughs) So that leads to a very different experience uh, when our first birth was in the hospital too when you enter a world like that where you haven't yet separated to become the observer Mm. and you are so caught up in the movie that is happening and the commentary that's happening about the movie and you kind of get swept away in what feels like, like, frankly, I don't even remember it because I was that detached. I I didn't have the ability then to be present um, at a deeper level. And so when I look back and say, oh, there are things that we would have done differently now. It's almost like we weren't there. That's right. I mean, I, I I wasn't there a woman in birth. I mean, she gets to a point where she shows up no matter what the situation is, but the guy has to muster that for himself. And, and I did not have the tools back then.
2: Yeah. And I think that, you know, one of the, um, uh, so many of the things that, that are worth talking about, I believe, for men is the, the, the feeling that men can have, fathers can have, expectant fathers in the case of someone who's about to have a child but hasn't had it yet with his, with his partner. Um, you know, we feel so different to what the women are feeling. We feel we know they're going through something that we can't even imagine. Um, and even if we did try to imagine that we probably would get the magnitude of it all wrong. Yeah. Um, and so there is a degree of, you know, well, gosh, I'm I'm kind of left out here. You you can you can imagine how it evolved that, as you can see, even depicted today in movies, um, the men being left in a waiting room uh, and, you know, the doctor coming out and saying it's a boy or it's a girl, you know, and then the cigars are broken out. and. Um you know the man has absolutely nothing to do with whatever was going on way in deep inside the internal aspect of the hospital. I think that even when uh when a man is present at his partner's birth, sometimes the um the feeling of what am I supposed to be feeling mm-hmm. uh how am I supposed to be relating uh I can't have the sensations that she's having um I, you know I didn't have a being growing inside my belly and kicking and distending my belly and moving all around and and you know waking me up in the night by its legs moving and things like that. She had all of that experience um she's been feeling all this coming for nearly ten months you know forty weeks I always wonder why we say nine months because forty weeks is four <laughs> right. is four right. times ten weeks right, right. Um, or, or uh, ten times four weeks I should say. Um, you know, so for 40 weeks, she's been going through all of this and what am I? Am I kind of a bystander? I mean, what's my role here? Uh, what am I supposed to be experiencing, doing, feeling? Of course, I'm ready for anything. And I think we men have a little bit of a tendency of you know, if there seems to be anything that it appears to be suffering, I have to solve it. Uh, I've got to come up with a solution for this. I have to um, make the suffering come to an end. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, my role is leap into action. That's the way our Western indoctrination is anyway. And then there we are, uh, you know, uh, even if we're present at a birth, we might be wondering, what the heck am I supposed to be doing here? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, surely if I get invited into massage shoulders or to run and get water, or if I'm, you know, asked to do something, I'll willingly do it, but other than that, I might feel a little bit left out of this whole thing. Yeah. Um, and even though I'm physically right here, present, this is a very interesting subject to um, to examine. I wonder what your thoughts are about that.
1: Well, for me, I mean, I like I said, I wasn't. I was a straight A sheep, so I had <laughs> I had a long way to go. Uh, to get that separation. But then even to, you know, I look back on it now and I would almost describe it that for a guy, the journey is one where you are given the opportunity to touch what is um, ultimately power of in its purest sense, but you have to walk through this long tunnel of what feels like powerlessness and if it bothers you that you can't fix it or make it go the certain way, you stop walking. Yeah. And if you get through that tunnel, you're ushered into a world that guys, I don't think, I mean, I think that is our chance to experience that. I mean, birth is unique in that. I can't think of another male initiatory, right? Perhaps at least in my experience um, that delivers that so consistently.
2: Yeah. I, I By the way, I concur completely with what you said. I, I, I don't know if I could even add anything to it. Um, I think that's so well put. Especially that, you know, um, perhaps using the language that I've developed is just a different way of saying the same thing. If you can, uh, if successfully, you can let go of the need to control.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: If successfully, you can let go of the need to um fix things and control, then you're going to be in the right frame of mind, the right state of consciousness to allow the gift to come to you. yeah but then I think it's a matter of percentages to the extent that you attempt to control like if you extend if you attempt to control to eighty percent, you're going to only receive twenty percent of the gift right <laughs> if you. If you let, if you manage to let go of control, um, uh, you know, utterly, then you're going to receive hundred percent of the gift.
1: Well, and for and, many, many men who didn't grow up, like, I mean, we're not on the path you're on, which is a very unique path. You think that this, if you can do it during birth and give up that need to control you, you think that that's just about birth, but you've really <laughs> just kind of chanced upon the secret to everything. That's right. That if you can carry that with you in a normal day, that's a different way of living
2: mm-hmm. yes, i was I was raved in my uh, tradition that you know I grew up in largely in India uh, for twenty five years. Um, when I say grew up in it, I entered it when I was in my late teens and was trained by my master Maharishi uh, for the next twenty five years. Um, and during those twenty-five years, several children were born. Let's see, about um, during my time with him, uh, about five of my ten children were born. Oh. Um, the The phrase that sticks with me that he espoused frequently was, "quote Control is opposed to evolution." You know that everything that you do, that you, you know, if if you have the idea that evolution can only occur with my assistance. (laughs) Uh, You know, individual that my individuality is going to cause evolution to go faster Um, that nature doesn't know best how to organize. It needs a little help from me Um, that, you know, to whatever extent you buy into that and then live that and actualize it then to that extent you're actually retarding the effect of nature's evolution. Mm -hmm. You're actually slowing things down. Uh, And so, you know, learning how to certainly be available, you know, you're, you're wide awake and conscious and available to be drawn into meeting and interacting with any new demand where it's relevant to act, of course. But, uh, but to be in that, state where, you know, control for me is not only not required, it's uh, almost like a pollution of the phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Then, as you say, transposing that, you know, you've been initiated through childbirth, uh, allowing that to translate into almost everything else in the world around you. Um, That is to say, everything that you interact with demands are being made on you. Are you going to interact with them or are you going to react to them? Um, And, you know, interacting with a demand is a spontaneous phenomenon where we become engaged. But reacting to a demand is effectively the definition of stress. That's what stress is. Yeah, You know, stress is not a situation. Stress is a reaction to a situation.
1: In the video that you made of your most recent birth, there was a point at which it was a beautiful, like you couldn't order up a more beautiful environment. That was it was just unbelievable.
2: Yes, it was.
1: Um, there was a point at which you started expressing really what I could only call pure joy.
2: Yes. I, th- I think it was, it was, um, it was pure joy. It was, um, you know, tears were flowing mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, i'm I'm not someone that I don't readily tear up you know I mostly uh find most things quite acceptable, so you know yeah. joy joy tears to, to get me to that level really takes quite a major event <laughs> and, well it was and, I guess it qualified yeah, it qualified <laughs> and you know I was flowing pretty well and um and i uh I really felt that thing that we were just talking about getting to the end of the tunnel without any effort, without any control. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, being, uh, being granted an experience of an offering to me of fatherhood.
3: Yeah.
2: You know, there's the offering of fatherhood. And we were all so ecstatic that, uh, including Marin, it took us about five minutes to bother looking to see if it was a boy or a girl. (laughs) (laughs) I was kind of like five minutes into this thing. We're like, oh, so wonderful, so fantastic, and so on. And then it finally occurred to me after about five minutes, has anybody looked to see if this is a male or a female? <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> we finally looked and went, it's a boy. <laughs> so almost the reverse of that thing that, you know, the the suited gentleman in the 1950s movies sitting in the waiting room with their cigars at ready, you know, someone coming out and going, it's a boy, it's a girl, that's the first thing they hear. Um It was like that was the last thing we bothered to look at. The other phenomenon was so just the deeper phenomenon of suddenly there was a very palpable new presence in the room. Uh And that was Henry. You know, a very palpable new presence in the room. And it wasn't it wasn't Ariella, my wife, it wasn't me. Uh, And it wasn't any longer something moving around in her belly, which we knew had its own entity status, but, you know, it was still moving around in her belly. There was this new thing in the room.
3: Yeah.
2: And, you know, uh, whether it was masculine or feminine was the last thing that occurred to us.
1: (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) So having as many children as we've each had, it's pretty rare in, in our Western culture, would you, what would you say, even though I know where you started, you know, and you were kind of in a, an accelerated position, as it were, even from your first experience, what would you say that these experiences have taught you about yourself?
2: Um, I think they've taught me that your individuality actually is cosmic, that by that i mean your individuality actually is uh, you are you are the universe having individu- an individualized human experience
3: yeah
2: uh, rather than you're an individual seeking some universal experience yeah. you're already the universe
3: right. you're you already
2: are you are that yeah. yeah and and it is uh what that joy that i felt that you described at henry's birth uh, which was a repetition of the joys I'd had every time uh, really was I, it wasn't even my individuality wasn't able to contain the universal joy that was flowing through me. It was almost mm-hmm. like it was bursting the boundaries of the dam. Uh, the individuality couldn't quite express it all. Yeah. In fact, I was a bit speechless, you know, and, and uh, lost for words. Uh, but the, you know, there is such a phenomenon as the cosmic self, and since the cosmic self is that one indivisible whole consciousness state, um, and if you've meditated a, a bit, you know that, you've experienced it many times. then you know to, to feel that universality operating through your individuality, it really is the universe taking joy and it replicating itself once again. Mm -hmm. and you know bringing yet another version of itself into existence and i and i i felt that um very much you know the the smallness of the small self couldn't possibly be either the cause or even the the uh individual experiencer of this thing there was something bigger going on Mm -hmm. and being able to allow that that was the great gift of my years of meditation throughout all of these births, um, being able to allow the universe to play through my individuality and enjoy what it's doing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, we've been doing indie births. I think we started when we lived in Flagstaff, uh, maybe 2007, we printed our first little magazine on a printer and, you know, sent it around town and So ever since then, you know, there there are plenty of women that want the birth experience like you're describing. Mm. Um, And whether it's at home or whatever, you know, some of them have fear about that. But in in all these years of kind of being in this world, I've realized that it's really the guys who have exponential levels of fear, Mm. many of them about this, particularly having a child at home. Um, and constantly in our world, we hear, my husband won't let me do that. My partner doesn't feel comfortable. And so you have this expression of yes, love, but it's so overshadowed with fear. It's just fear. Yeah. Um, what would you say to, to that collective, like, I mean, for la- it's a thought form out there that is so prevalent. Yeah. Um, and it's keeping people from this experience.
2: I would say one sentence knowledge eliminates fear. You know, one of the great things that Maren has created and, you know, you've co-created with her um, is a knowledge platform. I mean, I remember prior to Henry's birth, I had uh, with a previous partner, other children at home. Um, But the big difference with the indie births was the knowledge platform that came in advance of, Mm. you know, I mean, and right throughout the entire pregnancy, being able to listen to uh, the seminars uh, and, you know, taking all that in the combination of conversations between Marin and other women experts, um, the, all of the understanding, the raising of specifically the things that might frighten you.
3: Yeah.
2: And prospectively raising those things and then dealing with them and kind of unwinding them, you know, unpacking them so that you looked at them and they were just basically sets of facts about a perfectly natural phenomenon.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, one of the things that, uh, and one conversation I had with Marin that we both laughed about was that if you look at, you know, the worldpopulation.com um, speed with which children are appearing on the earth. hmm And, you know, it's literally, you know, one every one tenth of a second. Um, Birthing is, in fact, got to be one of the most natural things that is imaginable. I mean, babies are landing on the ground or in hospital rooms or wherever they're landing at a rate of something like 10,000 every 10 minutes or less. And so then, what could be more natural than that phenomenon? Right. I mean, you know, so the idea that there's something to be afraid of, basically what causes people to be afraid is lack of knowledge. Yeah. You know, when you don't have knowledge, and and admittedly, knowledge is made up of two components. I think intellectual understanding is a big part of it, and then direct experience fills it all in and really Mm -hmm. turns it properly into knowledge. And for somebody who is a first-time expectant father, they're yet lacking the direct experience, but getting the intellectual understanding in advance and really exhaustively being able to hear these subjects unpacked, the you know, all of the aspects that what if this, what if that? I just found in listening to the my, my background besides meditation is in science. I'm a cognitive neuroscientist, um being able to Listen to the scientific presentation of uh, the way that Marin lays out the knowledge. The intellectual understanding part of the knowledge is so complete, and then I think that you know once somebody's had a direct experience to fill in the gaps on the intellectual understanding side, they will uh, be able to enter the next childbirth if they decide to have another. Yeah. You know with significantly decreased fear due to them having greater and greater knowledge.
1: Well, and I think one of the things that you probably do automatically without even thinking about it that I certainly didn't do back at the beginning was this isn't just cramming your head full of stuff. Like you, You're talking about using knowledge to bring your fears, which you're projecting into the future here to the present, And integrating that now, right? So you're doing something very proactive with the knowledge. Mm -hmm. And that for a guy, you know, you can either learn everything but never do that second part. Yeah. And you're still gonna be in a tough
2: bind. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we, we we have to enter any field of knowledge with that idea that, you know, if you have good intellectual understanding, fantastic, but you also have to experience uh, right. and grades the direct experience so that you can uh, complete your knowledge in that way yeah. and and you know even then things that are you know yeah. you, you, there is also a danger I think in getting cocky like hey, I'm an expert on this I know everything there is to know about it yeah then um, you know things can happen that are still outside your range of expectation yeah but uh, but I think that certainly, making yourself into a knowledgeable person in on both fronts, intellectual understanding and direct experience, both those things go a tremendously long way in making you not driven, not not fear not fear-based administration at home. Mm -hmm. You know, fear-based administration at home is we hear it a lot too because of course Ariella has so many friends who are of childbearing age and just like you uh, you know, we we hear women saying, I want to do this, I want to do that. And then, you know, the first line of, uh, you, very often, not in every case, but very often, the first line of resistance and control uh, is, you know, the men. And then the second line is the mothers and mothers-in-law
3: yeah.
2: and other family members who consider themselves to be stakeholders in how the birthing is done. Uh, So there really is a tremendous amount of uh, sociological and psychological pressure uh, on a couple and specifically on a woman to be able to actually make a choice that she wants to make uh, to take a knowledgeable approach to the natural way, to nature's own way of birthing um, and take You know, to to use that familiar byline of indie birth, you know, uh, taking birth back, you know, um, and and giving it back to uh, the person who's doing it, which is the woman. Um, You know, taking it back from what? Well, all of those members of society who consider themselves to be righteously stakeholders in the event, and it doesn't stop, of course, with. Family members. It goes on to all of the vested interests who uh, earn money from you being afraid. Right. You know. uh, You. You know. You. There's no way that you can birth a baby without, you know, scores of hospital professionals, with you know, with long degrees after their name, uh, who are going to make this thing happen. And then I have to go back to well, hang on. There's babies hitting the earth by the thousands, <laughs> <laughs> you know, in the deserts, in the snow, in the in the jungles, everywhere. They didn't um, get the
1: memo, unfortunately. I guess. <laughs> yeah,
2: I mean, you know, this yeah. thing's going on irrespective of modern medical science. Uh, it's a great thing to know that a hospital's there if you break an arm, and if anything weird goes on in a birth, of course a hospital's there. Medical professionals are there, but really, uh, you know. By and large, it's only fairly recently that this whole birthing thing uh, suddenly became in the domain of all these profit-making stakeholders. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's a whole other subject. But I'm trying to remember which of the presidents it was that was the 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 the, uh, the president of the United States who first was born in a hospital. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I believe it was Clinton.
3: Hmm.
2: Uh, before that, before that, uh, all of the presidents of the United States were born at home. Yeah. So it's a relatively, relatively recent event. I could be wrong about Clinton. It might be the guy who came before him, but, uh, I think it might've been Clinton.
1: What do you feel? What experience of life do you feel you would have missed out on? Had you not made these choices that you made with your partners about birth?
2: I would have missed out on the results of the initiation. That's the biggest part of it.
1: And I know you can't really put that into words, but I'm going to put you on the spot anyway.
2: Well, I think, <laughs> I think you know, the idea that you can control your way into greatness, <laughs> yeah. you know, it was kind of like, uh, you know, uh, nature doesn't know what it's doing. Humans know what they're doing. And, you know, humans are here to, to tell nature what to do. That you know, we we have to corral nature and control it, um, and then applying that mentality to everything you do. Like, I get a desire; I want to fulfill that desire, and so I'm going to carve a path of destruction if necessary. To from where to close the gap of time between where I am now having a desire and me getting my desire fulfilled. Yes, even that idea that a desire that I have as my personal property it came from inside me and I own it. Um, you know, that tendency which has caused and wreaked destruction on the earth. Uh, whereas what's the opposite of that? Well, I'm thinking, you know, as a result of my, um, my, my fatherhood initiation and initiations multiple, um, I now know that if a desire bubbles up in my mind, it's the property of the universe. It's not mm-hmm. my personal thing that I own. Yeah. Um, because of my fatherhood initiations, I know that you know when nature wants me to be somewhere sometime, it's going to tell me through the instrumentality of a desire. It's not that if I have a desire and fulfill it, then I'm going to get fulfilled. Right. No, a desire is actually... It's an evolutionary mechanism. Nature births a desire in my awareness, and says, "Go over there and stand in this particular place." And you know, if the thing fulfills itself, fine. If it doesn't, that's my timing, not yours. Um, and so, I've learned that uh, from my from my my teaching and my teacher, but also from my initiations in fatherhood, which really were very practical initiations. You know, a child coming into the world is not my property. Mm -hmm. Uh, The woman who is having the child, my child who's coming to the earth, is not my property either. The phenomenon is not my property. And so then if that's true in those areas, then it must also be true, even with my own desires as they bubble up, They're not my property. They're nature's way of saying, move in that direction. Yeah. If things happen to go in a particular way that you envision, that's fine. But if things don't go in that way, then rest assured, nature's in control.
1: It does seem like we've all been given a foolproof recipe for consistent misery in the see the goal. I'm going to get the goal. I'm going to kill something and drag it home, like kind of brainwashing that is everywhere.
2: And then, and and I think what makes that worse, even is, and then I'll be fulfilled. Yeah, yeah. like you know, desires will stop coming. Right. Well, well, of course they don't. Right. Um. And, and you know, so we get into that acquisition mentality. I'm going to acquire something. And you know, when you when you realize through the birthing uh, process, I'm not acquiring a child. I'm not acquiring, you know, a family that I've created. Um, I'm being gifted an experience and an initiation into an entire new way of thinking if I'm open to accept it and learn from it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I remember, you know, early on between our first and second births, where we were making the transition from hospital to home, you know, e- even then it's so ingrained. It was so ingrained in me to project my, like, I just want her to be safe. I had to project that story of, this is how it needs to go yeah. for it to be okay. Yeah. And you know, and no one, I didn't have a midwife. Our midwives were a little different. you know, So no one looked me in the eye and said, do you hear what you're saying? <laughs> 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 Maybe you should just take a breath next time and not say anything. Yeah. You know, no direct lessons like that. So I had to kind of bumble my way to realizing that, I mean, ultimately, I realized that being is the ultimate doing.
2: That's a beautiful statement. You know, it is. I mean, it's, uh, it, it really is. The, it's, the, it's the ultimate action. It's the source of all action, the yeah. source of all thoughts.
1: Yeah. Have you noticed um, any similarities between the characteristics of the births of your children and your children? How they came versus how they are?
2: Uh, yes, I think there's an infinite correlation yeah. Uh, you know, because there's something else going on that, again, could probably be another one-hour conversation. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that is that these uh, beings are bringing into this existence some, in Sanskrit, from the ancient language of India, we call it smriti. Smriti means a memory. Hmm. They're bringing with them the memory of wherever it was that that being was prior to this and you know one of the traditional ways of stating that would be karma you know to say that there is some uh unfinished business being brought to the earth and you know from the vedic perspective the cause of birth that is to say what causes a soul to be born is unfinished business Hmm. you know that you have at the end of the previous life, still some unfulfilled desires and some unfinished business. And so, you know, you're not born a perfected being. Um, you are born with an agenda. Yeah. And so then is that consciousness bringing an agenda to earth? And if so, in the answer is yes. And, and if, and, and given that it is, um, is that going to influence the way that it experiences itself? its own birthing of course mm-hmm. it is
3: yeah
2: you know and so there there are some uh some children who their consciousness when they're born uh causes them to create a bit of a struggle in the process and there are some who whose consciousness uh they're much more taken it as it comes and you know let's just go with the flow here and they slip straight out
3: yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> and, you know with relatively little drama. And then, as they grow into adults, you can see that seed form of them. Now it has germinated into a full grown, grown plant. And as they're working out their unfinished business, you can see that as they are now, they were in seed form. Uh, but of course, you know, evolution being what it is, they're getting better and better every day.
3: <laughs> yeah, sure,
2: That's... and and you know, uh, and more and more comfortable in their skin every day. Yeah.
1: It's amazing to witness. It really is. If you were speaking to someone who, you know, let's say they're an expectant father, perhaps they're considering moving out of however they've been conditioned to think into a realer expression of who they are, who their partner is and the life they feel they're here to create. Um, How would you describe your understanding based on your experience of the role of the father in the birth of his child.
2: I I would boil it all down to two what will sound initially, but I'll flesh it out. <laughs> two very frustrating sounding words. Relax and enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, now, those are good. Why why would you relax and enjoy? Well then that you know, then that has to be answered. And I think that, you know, we have to consider how many right now there's seven point three billion people on earth. And they were all born sometime within the last century. You know, the oldest of them is about 100. Uh, there's no, nobody much older than that. So 7.3 billion people have been born in the last century. And when we start thinking about how many billions have landed on the Earth prior to that, surely we can relax and enjoy <laughs> since, you know, this thing is not anything new. Right. You know, it might be new to a particular man. Uh, you know, a particular man might say, I've never done this before, you know, this is new to me. So I would say, you know, an aid of being able to relax and enjoy, because that would be my mandate. I would say, you've got to do this, you've got to relax and enjoy. Well, how do I get there? Mm -hmm. And once again, uh, get knowledge. And the older the people are you get knowledge from, the better, in my opinion.
3: Yeah.
2: Like if you can go to some of the oldest people you know, particularly the women, and say, What's this all about? you're likely to get uh, a spectrum of, of experience that's going to tell you that everything's going to be okay.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, you know, uh, because there is something that goes along with longevity, and that is the accrual of at least a little greater wisdom. Not to say that there's not some, you know, relatively old people who are, you know, panic merchants. There are certainly some of those, but you can tell the difference between them and people who have that wisdom. Well, know, go, a, a go volume wiser,
1: of, go ahead
2: go to the wisest people you know, yes, and ask them if it's appropriate to relax and enjoy <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they
1: have such a wealth of direct experience that is synthesized into simple truths yeah. like they're they're the easiest source of that type of knowledge, so yeah, it's it's you know the birth experience is so. Because it, par- I mean, it is life. It's funny that we're sitting here, talk- I'm talking about it as though it's something different. Like, this is, these are the lessons of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is just one application of them. But learning some of these through birth is what radically kind of shifted my path uh, irrevo- irrevocably. You can't put the egg back together Once something like this breaks it open, like you're kind of screwed. You have to keep going now. Yeah, that's Um, (laughs)
2: right. The way my my master put it was, uh, once an elephant enters your tent, the (laughs) the tent's never quite the same anymore.
1: (laughs) That's funny. That's funny. funny. What do you think is the greatest part of this whole experience for you?
2: I think it is... um, uh being able to uh, have played a role, uh, which I find, you know, it's funny because people often, and my children, uh, often give me accolades at being a father and all of that. I don't really feel like I've done that much, Jason. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's like, oh, we've got the greatest father. I mean, even my grown-up children, you know, they're like, the, we have the greatest dad, we have the greatest father. And then sometimes people come to me and say, you know, how did you get to be that way where your kids talk to you, talk about you that way? And I go, actually, I didn't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> I just, yeah. you know, kind of continued relaxing and enjoying. Um, but to have that knowledge that your individuality played a very palpable part in a cosmic continuity phenomenon.
3: Yeah,
2: There's a cosmic continuity phenomenon and my individuality got to play a role in it. Uh, To me, that is just so satisfying. Um, I have to tell you something. This is a really interesting thing that, you know, we've been talking a lot about men, but I think men need to contemplate this. Once upon a time, when I was walking around in India, I came across a temple in far north India, out in the middle of a field. I was lost, frankly. I was trying to find, I was on foot and I was trying to find my way to a major thoroughfare. And um, I went into this ancient temple, and on the wall of the temple, there was a mural. And that mural had the most, um, it was the most amazing painting, and I'm not sure how old it, it was. It looked to me to be at least hundreds of years old. Mm-hmm. At the top of the, of the mural was a picture of a naked woman uh, who obviously had just given birth to a girl child the umbilicus was emerging from the woman's womb and was still connected to the belly of the child. But the child wasn't a child. There wasn't a baby. It was uh, connected by the umbilicus to her mother was another woman of of childbearing years Hmm. who also had coming out of her womb another (laughs) umbilicus yeah. It was connected to the belly of another girl child that wasn't a child. It was a a woman, a young woman who had coming out of her womb, another umbilicus connected to another woman. It went on like this for about eight um, declensions of women. And then the last of them, there was a woman who had given birth with the umbilicus coming out and attaching to the belly of, of the, uh, of the woman was a little boy with a penis. Hmm. And then you could see the people all around the baseline of this picture looking at that almost like askants like with question marks, like what happens <laughs> next? Cause you know, uh, there's no, no umbilicus coming out of him, <laughs> you know? And, and I contemplated that I walked away contemplating that for such a long time that, you know, when we think about the, uh, the paternal way in which we, have created our civilization where it's the male line by which everyone's named and you know, it's the males and the males and the males, which was really a kind of uh, a way of, you know, our insecurity, which has to do with something. We may not have contemplated that particular picture and what it means, but there's a continuity between mother and daughter that strangely enough is broken when a boy is born because there's, there's no umbilicus coming out of a boy. Uh, onto the navel of a child. And so then that puts us, Ben, in a very interesting position. Uh, The position being, you know, what do we do with that? Um, What is our role then? And I think these things are all really worth contemplating because we do still have a role in, you know, obviously being uh, bringing the masculine end of, of reproduction into play. We have that role, Um, but we're not going to have that experience that was depicted in that mural of, you know, that kind of feminine continuity. And so then I think it's incumbent on us men to find our own umbilical between each other. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's incumbent on us to find the continuity. And I think that that was a long answer to your previous question, but uh, it made me think of it that. You know, being able to be engaged in a, in a, you know, in close proximity to the phenomenology of birthing, I think it really does, it gives us a role which we kind of secretly, subconsciously guess at as men that we're missing something mm-hmm. uh, that women are having, but we're being invited into that role. Through indie births. We're being invited into it through being a witness of a live birth by our partner in an environment that is, you know, this word's horribly overused, but I mean the word literally, naturally. Yeah. But, you know, there's a natural environment, nature's own environment. And as you said, allowing to go yourself to go with the flow down the tunnel and being gifted with the gift at the end of that that is the compensation for not seeing an umbilicus emerge from between our legs.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know my experience over all of these has been, you know, if you think of, of the female energetics, like the constant motion, and then my experience or my challenge really over these nine births and with everyone is to figure out how to deepen I don't remember which one I experienced it first with, but the witness role yeah, to, to stand there as like a void basically, which, um, and over the births that has deepened to such a, a degree where you realize that you get to almost touch the limitless in a different way.
2: I think of it like, uh, you're, uh, you're really hitting so many points and you'd think that you and I had had deep conversations about this in the past, which we haven't. We're having it now. That's right. We'd always wanted to have this conversation, and we have to have it with lots of others listening. That's great. Um, I think of the colorless sap inside of a, a flower. You know, the colorless sap has no shape. It has no form. It has no smell. It has no—it's uh, just colorless sap. But contained in it is the field of all possibilities. Emerging from it can come a green stem— a green flat leaf, a beautiful pink or red or yellow petal, fragrances and everything, and the color of the sap is pervasive all through the flower. Ultimately, that's the witness thing. It's the field of all possibilities. Yeah. It's not just um, in case any of our listeners might think that you know being a witness means that you're just like you know a useless you know thing watching observer. Uh, it's not quite the yeah, same as observer. No. No, it's not. It's not the same as an observer. Uh, that that you are the field of all possibilities, yeah. like the colorless sap. Um, you feel yourself uh, at your baseline and your least excited state, which is right there, even with eyes open. That simplest form of awareness is like the colorless sap. It is the source of all of this expression. And it's able to, and that's where that connection between individuality and your cosmic status is. That's what the connection is right there. Your own simplest form of awareness, which is a field of all possibilities. It can convert into anything. In fact, not only is it witnessing this phenomenon, it feels unity with the phenomenon. Yeah. Because all phenomena are emerging out of the colorless sap.
1: Yeah, and it seems like, you know, in throughout the generations, men have gotten there, whether exitory or inhibitory ways, you know, either feats of strength or initiatory rights, like it's like you can come at it from both sides of the circle. Yeah. Um, and birth allows you this way where you can get swept along into it. That's right. In a way that I can't really think how else you would do it that way.
2: If you're open to it and there's the big challenge right there is as you said it's an initiation if you allow it to be Uh, or it's sheer terror um, (laughs) and perhaps your way of dealing with that is resignation uh, if you decide if if for some reason or another right now you're not ready for that initiation right and I I do think that you know one of the great things about our universe is that nothing is your last chance. You know, there's no such thing as a last chance. There's going to be lots of other chances, but this is an opportunity to have an initiation. Yeah. What a great way of putting it. I I really admire that. And by the way, I'm putting you on notice that I'll be plagiarizing your words.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. This is, it's been great to, to share this with you. Uh, Likewise. Yeah. So I know we didn't talk, we touched on Vedic meditation, but just in the closing minutes here, because I feel that what you teach is a key that so many men, humans, I mean, I'm not just saying it's for men, but it opens doors that a lot of people don't get the chance to find on their own. Could you just talk a little bit about your work and maybe where people could go to learn
2: more? Yeah, I think, uh, I'll answer the last question first. Uh, my website, which is my name, T-H-O-M, my name spelled oddly, T-H-O-M for Tom, uh, K-N-O-L-E-S, TomKnolls.com, okay. uh, will answer most of those questions. But in brief, just to give a preview of what people would see if they went online and, and read read about it, the word meditation is somewhat of a misnomer because when I look up the word meditation in the dictionary, you can see, well, you know, a thought process, uh, you know, a process of contemplation. Uh, there's even, for goodness sake, premeditated murder. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so what does meditation mean? Well, it can mean almost anything. Specifically, what we do is we sit with our eyes closed uh, for about 20 minutes at a time, typically about twice each day. And we make use of a specific kind of mantra, a mantra that has no intended meaning. It's a beautiful, mellifluous sound. And there are different mantras that work best for different people. And so not everybody gets the same mantra. There are groups of mantras and groups of people that are best served by those. Mm -hmm. And then you just are thinking the mantra very effortlessly, not trying to control the mind, not trying to visualize anything not trying to structure anything. There's no concentration involved. The mantra starts to become softer and quieter as it repeats in the mind. And again, it has no meaning. And so it's not working on the level of wanting a thing to happen or, you know, trying to get some meaning out of it. It's just a pulsation of sound. And as that sound becomes subtler and quieter and fainter, it's drawing you into that least excited state, which the nature of that least excited state is bliss. Mm -hmm. It's a, you know, inside of everyone's mind right now, it's not created by meditation. Inside of everyone's mind is a layer that is just pure, supreme inner contentedness. And so as the mind starts getting pulled in that direction, the mantra and other thoughts that may appear in the mind start to become, I use the word kind of gold dusted with charm. Mm -hmm. The mind becomes fascinated by the phenomenology of thinking, not even the content. Just, you know, the mind begins to experience that it's a joyful experience just settling down into those less excited states. Then ultimately, the mind will be taken to a very, very quiet place and the mantra will just disappear. And the mind is left for a moment in transcendence where there's no mantra and no thought replacing it. But, you know, in a new meditator, it doesn't last for very long. The first thought you have is, this is it, you know, or here I am. But, of course, you're not there anymore. You're thinking about it now. So <laughs> <laughs> right. then then you need to know how effortlessly to curve the mind back onto that pulsation of sound, that mantra. And it will draw your mind back to that silent place again. And so you do that you know, for about 20 minutes uh, twice every day. And then as you do that, your mind is not only going to a least excited state. Your body is resting uh, by several magnitudes of restfulness greater than sleep. Mm -hmm. And this allows your body to release and relieve accumulated stress so that every time you practice the technique, you have cleared accumulated stress out of your physiology. And therein lies one of the greatest parts of the practice. So as you keep practicing regularly, not only do you familiarize yourself with that simplest form of awareness that's deep inside you, but you also physiologically are finding that you have greater liberty to unleash all of your potentials and not be hamstrung by your stresses.
1: Yeah. Radically shifts your experience and dance with reality.
2: Correct. Yeah. And puts you in a position where you can choose to interact with demand rather than simply reacting to them. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent.
1: Well, thank you so much for sharing the stories and taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. And, all the listeners, I'm sure,
2: uh, and, and a great and, positive force. And thank you and Maren for really uh, creating what I, I believe to be one of the most relevant revolutionary forces socially that's currently extant on the earth.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it's a, it's an honor to be involved. Very good. Well, thank all, you.
2: All the best to both of you.
1: Yeah, you too, and blessings for the future.
2: Thank you.